Welcome to the Indianola First Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our prayer is that this message will inspire you, encourage you, and launch you into life-changing action. Man, you guys are fired up. (laughs) And why not? We should be fired up. We serve the greatest God you could ever serve. And uh, he's actually the only one you could really serve that's real. Amen? So uh, we are going to jump into a little mini-series here in the next few weeks, and I I am so excited about this. We're going to go through the book of Ruth. There's four chapters in the book of Ruth. It is so power-packed with good stuff, with gold in them there four chapters, that we're going to take a few weeks and just kind of mine out that gold, dig it out a little bit, and uh, I'm going to do stuff a little different. You know, I... People ask me, what's your preaching style? And I said, I have no idea. Um, sometimes I'm a little this way, sometimes I'm a little that way. And, and for this series, I'm gonna be maybe even different than I've ever been. I, I, what I wanna do is read through, not, not every word, but a lot of the words of the book of Ruth throughout this series, and I wanna pull stuff out as I read it. And so where a message would be like three points normally and, and here's the main idea and all that, I want to take out a bunch of main ideas as if we're reading it as a devotion together. Because when you read the Word of God, you're not just putting in your time. You're not just, well, i got to get my four chapters in, or my ten chapters, or my two chapters. Because a lot of people approach it that way, and when they're done, they've read it, they're like, oh, i got, my, I got my, uh, my reading in for the day. You know what that is? That's religion. That's just going through the motions of what we're supposed to do. But if you'll sit and meditate on the Word of God, if you'll look at it, if you'll begin to dig and ask questions as you read it, there is so much good stuff that you can learn. And, and actually, Pastor Jerry was talking about the discipleship process. You become your best discipler when you read the Word of God that way. And how many know that you can't disciple somebody unless they want to be discipled? I love the idea of follow-up for new believers, but I love the, uh, the, uh, the idea a whole lot more of follow-through as a believer, right? You understand what I'm saying? Are you awake? Turn to your neighbor and punch him in the shoulder lightly and tell him, I'm glad I'm awake. All right, so we're gonna take this closer look at the book of Ruth and there's some, again, real treasures in these chapters. And I'm gonna encourage you to read through this book this week, read through the whole book of Ruth this week and even reread it each week afterwards until we're through with the series, but of course I, I, I leave that up to you. And it may be a really great time to sit down as a family as the new school year is upon us and spend some quality time in the Word together, reading it together. The first five, chapter, or five verses of, of chapter one really give some historical content for the entire book, which will help us in our understanding as we study it. So let me start by turning to Ruth chapter one, verse one. It says, in the days when the judges ruled. So this is verse 1a, actually, just the first part of, of chapter, uh, or verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled. And those are the kind of phrases we sometimes just jump across. We don't really think about it. But understand what it's saying. This was a dark, dark time in human history. They were very sinful times. The story of Ruth is almost like the shining light in the midst of the darkness. And I I think we can all relate to needing that shining light in the midst of so much darkness. Have you been there a little bit? 
where we feel like you know, the, the world's caving in on us or, or sometimes I've said this to a couple of the, the, the groups in church here. I've said, you know, I think people are walking around just waiting for the next shoe to fall, shoe to drop. You know, like, when's it going to hit me? When's I, when am I going to be taken out? When's the devil going to do his dirty work on me? And we have this, like, mentality, and I'm not saying everybody does, but there's this mentality in, in, in society right now that's just really dark, faithless, hopeless, kind of like we have to live under these circumstances and situations. And I'm telling you, church, God never created you to live under the circumstances or situations. He created you to rise above anything you're in, grab hold of his hand, and just kind of hydroplane on all that crappiness in life. How many know there's some crappiness in life? Well, I don't, I don't particularly like that, but if I gotta deal with it, I'm gonna hydroplane on it and not sink in it. Anybody ever sink in crappiness? I have, literally. I used to work on a hog farm. And the... Uh, it's a neighbor's hog farm when I was a kid and had a little girl and she loved this dog and this dog happened to jump into the confinement pit under the, she started crying and I jumped in, not smartly because I could have died with, from the fumes, but I jumped in and, you know, your pastor, if you can imagine, this was this deep in liquid hog manure. I'd rather hydroplane on it in life. I didn't go on a date for three weeks because <laughs> you just can't get that smell off. Now that you got a really good word picture there, I just, I'll, I'll move on. But this was a dark time. And, you know, Judges 21 25 says this In those days, Israel had no king, everyone did as they saw fit. I read that and I was like, wow. I just want to make this comparison here. When there is no king, when there is no authority, when there is no one to lead, people will do whatever they want. And this was true during that time, and it's certainly true today. I saw a story the other day about how shoplifting has gone through the roof in San Francisco. The law was relaxed in 2014, which made the theft of property less than $950 in value, a simple misdemeanor instead of a felony. Since then, there's been a steady decline of uh, prosecution for shoplifting in the area. In fact, some of the, the elected prosecutors have said, we're, we're just not going to prosecute this. We don't have the time or money to do it. So that basically led to one journalist who just moved there from New York saying, in San Francisco, is it like optional to pay for things? Because there's literally video on, on the web where you can watch as the security guard holds a camera and videos people with trash bags in their retail store that they're working at just filling the bags. And no one's doing anything about it because there's no authority. There's no one to say you can't do that. We're gonna prosecute you if you do that. So people do whatever they want. Actually, store owners and, and national, national chain stores like CVS, they've scaled back their security guards because shoplifting enforcement has become so dangerous for them. So instead of ramping it up and stopping it because no one above in the legal system is going to do anything about it, they just scale it back and let them do whatever they want. And those stores are going to close. There's going to be no retail there eventually. 
People will do as they see fit when authority and accountability is taken away. Think about that. People will do as they see fit when authority and accountability is taken away. As it was in the days of Ruth, so it will be in the days of us, right? It's kind of like that right now. You start taking away authority and people will do whatever they want. Ruth 1.1b says, There was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So the book of Ruth kind of opens with this Jewish, Jewish couple along with their two sons leaving Judah because a famine forced them to leave. Now remember, these are God's people. They're the Israelites. They're his chosen people. They knew about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, whose name was was changed to Israel, as you all know, and he had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. They knew about Moses, and they knew the Jewish Mosaic law. They were living in the time between Joshua leading the nation of Israel into the promised land and the first king of Israel, King Saul. It was the time of the judges. And and, and this was, again, a dark time. These were the people of God who were living in the land of Canaan, the land that was promised to Abraham as an inheritance for his descendants, which would be too numerous to count. This was the land that was supposed to be flowing with milk and honey, and it did, but as the Israelites first entered the land, they were not completely obedient to what God had commanded them to do. I want you to understand how important obedience is. Obedience to God and his word is not optional as a Christian. Because as soon as it becomes optional, and as soon as you get to start deciding what is true and what is not based off of your own experiences, God no longer ceases, or he ceases to be God in your life, and you begin being God of your own life because you're the author of, what, of that which is true for you. I love it, I, I, I'm being very facetious when I say that, because I hate it, but I love it when people say, well, what's your truth? My truth is this. What's your truth? Their truth was this. There is only one truth. It's not relative based off a person and their perspective. Truth is true. It's that which is true, regardless of your perspective. These Israelites were not completely obedient to what God had commanded them to do when they entered the promised land, and it caused all sorts of issues within their nation. They didn't drive out the occupying people completely. They did in a lot of parts, but in other parts they didn't. They settled for good instead of best. Oh man, I wonder how many times God's people settle for good instead of best. They relaxed some of the moral mandates that God had given them. I wonder what would happen if the church of Jesus Christ started relaxing some of the, uh, the moral mor- morality that they hold so dear. Morality that's taught in the word of God. I wonder what would happen. I wonder how we could ever see into the future and see if the church would ever relax its morality. I think that's already happened, doesn't it? I think it's happening right now. You end up with a group of people that meet and sing about God, but they're completely powerless. See, what these Israelites did is they let the surrounding culture slowly change them instead of standing firm in their beliefs and actions. I wonder if God's people today, those that bear his name as Christians, fall into the same traps of letting their surrounding culture slowly dullen them 
Being in the world is not easy. Young people, those of you who just came back from an amazing week of camp and all the experiences that go with that, it's not going to be easy when you get back to school. It's not going to be easy to stand firm in Jesus when the culture around you is so anti-God. How are you going to conduct yourself? There are those Christians who, just, who, are, who are just against the culture all around us. They just oppose everything around them and they tend to isolate themselves from the world, which limits them in being a light and a world changer that, that, that God has created them to be. And then there are Christians who welcome and invite the culture around them. They, they invite it into the church. They mirror what they see around them in the world to the point that they often soften the message of the gospel just to be accepted and relevant within the culture. So what are we supposed to do? Shun the world and be isolationless or invite the world to us and, and let it dull in us and, and creep in? And, and really, the truth is, we need, we need to do both and we need to do neither. We are in this world, but not of it. We should conduct ourselves as ambassadors. We represent another world while living in the middle of this one. And when the nation of Israel first entered Canaan, the land was separated into 12 tribes, into 12 areas of, of territory. Each of these areas were named and occupied by members from that specific tribe. So let's, I want to show you the map of this real quick, and this is just some of the background of what's going on. It's a little stretchy, but I think you can see it there. I think, do I have a, oh no, that's all right. Um, oh yeah, here it is. I have a laser pointer. Look at this. We're just high tech today, aren't we? So right here, you can see the different tribes. You have Simeon, and you have Judah, and you have uh, Ephraim, and you have uh, Asher, and Naphtali, and Zebulun, and Gad, and Reuben. And here, right here, is Bethlehem. You can't really see that very well, but right there is Bethlehem. Bethlehem is where this story begins in Ruth. And we just said, or in Ruth 1-2, it says this, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. So this is where they were living. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab. Go back to the map real quick, if you would. They went from Bethlehem, which was I'm sorry, uh, uh, there, where are we here? There we go, Bethlehem. And they went around the Dead Sea and they went down to the country of Moab right there. Okay? So they went to Moab, which was not one of the areas of the 12 tribes. That was outside of, of Israel as a nation. And I, I, want, I want to take note here as, as we're going through these first two verses that names are important, especially in biblical Jewish culture. You know, it's been said that uh, a person's name is the most beautiful word in the English language. So turn to your neighbor and just speak their name. Everybody's smiling. Some of you are still talking. It's like, that. you have a long name. I mean, I... But names were important in the Old Testament. They're, they're important today. And in the Jewish culture, they were almost like prophecies in a way and were given as a reflection of emotions or situations in which they were born. Most of us here today know what our name means. My name, Barry, 
It means keen marksman, pointed, sharp like a spear. So every time someone says my name, they are, in a sense, speaking over me that I am a sharp and pointed person who hits the mark, and that can be good or bad, right? Alyssa means rational and is believed to be associated with the Elysium plant, which was an old treatment for madness or craziness. So my prophetic take on my wife and I's names is this. Where I am pointed with my words or opinions, she is rational. And she is the cure when I go over the edge and fall into madness or craziness. I'll go along with that. And it's a good thing that people are speaking Alyssa's name over her every time they they see her or they say her name. Because she needs to be that rational one. So names do mean something, and Elimelech, Naomi's husband, literally means, and write this down if you can, my God is king. We're going we're to use this all throughout here, so my God is king. That's what Elimelech means. Naomi means pleasant in Hebrew. And as we read on the book of Ruth, read on in the book of Ruth, you're going to see that Naomi's life was not pleasant. It was filled with the opposite. She lived a life of bitter circumstances. Malon, their one son, means sickly or sickness. Maybe Naomi named him after the way she felt during her pregnancy. I don't know. Maybe something had, to, had been going on to, to, to literally name your kid sickness. I mean, something had to be going on, right? Maybe he was born sickly. But it literally means sickness or sickly. Maybe he had some deficiencies. We don't know. But their name, they named their other son, Killian, um, wasting or pining away. So Mr. My God is my king and Mrs. Pleasant, along with their son, sickly and wasting away. <laughs> and it's interesting when you plug the meanings of their names into the story. They left Bethlehem and Judah and moved out of the promised land and settled into the land of Moab. And you can show that map up there, how they, how they, what their route was, and I already kind of showed it. But here's Bethlehem, it's a little closer picture. They went up through Jerusalem, they went around here, and they came down and they went to Moab and they lived there, which was not a part of the promised land, again, not part of God's chosen people. And I should remind you of who the Moabites were. This is interesting, too. See, we read over this stuff, and we don't think about what we're reading. Who were the Moabites? What was the deal with them moving there? They were the descendants of Moab, the, who was the incestuous, incestuous son of Lot and his daughter. You can look it up in Genesis 19. After Lot, who was Abraham's nephew, was rescued from Sodom and Gomorrah, and you remember the story, his wife turned to a pillar of salt, Right? He should have never been in Sodom and Gomorrah anyway. God's people should not live, you know, with, with, no, with no regard to the evil around them. He was living in a, in a, in a snake pit, and he, and he let the snake pit change him rather than him changing, getting back to that culture thing. Again, are you going to let the culture change you, or are you going to stand firm in the midst of the culture? Lot apparently let it get to him a little bit, because after he was rescued from Sodom and Gomorrah, miraculously... He ends up sleeping with his two daughters, and one of the daughters gives birth to Moab, and Moab, Moab was the, uh, or Moab was the, uh, uh, his, his race that was, 
that was spawned from, the race that was spawned from him were the Moabites. And this is where they went. And it sounds like a soap opera, doesn't it? Next week, as the stomach turns, as the world turns. So why did Elimelech move? Was it wrong for him to move? Was it in God's will for him to move? A couple of thoughts on this. In verse 2 of Ruth chapter 1, the scripture says that they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And this has been cited by some Bible scholars as evidence that Elimelech was a wealthy man. So here's a wealthy man in the midst of famine. And we know that that's why they left. They were looking for food. Famine had hit Judah really hard. So during the famine, as a wealthy man, he may have not wanted to lose everything he had, and so he left. And I'm speculating a little bit here, but that's what you do when you read the word because God begins to speak to you, and then you maybe go in and you try to, try to undergird or prove what it is that you were thinking and the line of thought that you had. He may have not wanted to lose everything that he had, and so he left. The Bible says that they went to sojourn in the country of Moab, and this suggests that he was planning to return to Bethlehem and not stay in Moab indefinitely. Sojourn was just like a temporary thing. He obviously, for some reason, did not want to stay and try to weather the famine even though he was wealthy. Could, could be that he would have, it would have been too disgraceful for him to lose his wealth and status. Can you imagine being wealthy? And then all of a sudden, a famine comes, and, and you know, you're powerful, and you're, you, have, you have a reputation, and you're, you're held up and, and esteemed by the people that you live around, and everybody looks up to you, and then you lose all your wealth because of famine. That's hard on a guy's pride. Just a thought I had. I wonder if that's why he left. Can't prove it, but it's definitely plausible. Maybe he didn't want to lose his reputation. Maybe moving away, even temporarily, he could avoid all this, all this famine stuff. Regardless of why they moved, they moved, and the scripture doesn't say anything about a bunch of people moving. There wasn't a mass exodus that we know in, in Judah at the time because of the famine, but it does just say that he and his wife and their two sons, Mr. Uh, My God is King, Mrs. Pleasance, and their two sons, sickly and waste away, right? Wow. And there's a lot to be said here about following the will of God, recognizing the motive of your own heart. Reacting to circumstances instead of responding. Oh my goodness, guys. How often do we do that? Do we react to circumstances instead of responding? Maybe it was divine providence that Elimelech and Naomi moved. Theologians go back and forth on this. Uh, and honestly, we really don't know the answer and we can only speculate. But it's surely a reminder that you'd better know you're hearing from God when you make big decisions in life. One decision can affect your entire life. One choice can lead you down paths of blessings or paths of destruction. And God can always redeem, but so often we all make decisions based off of our earthly perspective and what we see. We forget to look at the circumstances with eternal eyes. You know, prayer is a good thing. It's a wonderful tool that we have to walk this life and make good decisions. But oftentimes we don't use it. Ruth 1.3 says, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, they're in Moab now. This jumps right into the story. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. 
and she was left with her two sons in this foreign land. Just because he died doesn't mean that he had made a bad decision. It doesn't mean he made a good one either. We really just don't know. But this was bad for Naomi. She found herself in a foreign land without the rights that she would have had back home. She was fortunate, though. She still had her two sons, sickly and waste away. So Ruth 1.4 goes on and says, these, took, uh, these sons of hers, they took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. So finally, Ruth comes on the scene here, who the, the book is named after, and, and you're going to see the focus begin to shift to Ruth. Jewish law was pretty straightforward about marriage. Intermarriage between tribes was allowed with some restrictions, but marriage outside of the nation of Israel was forbidden, and that is exactly what these two boys did. They married outside of the nation of Israel. They were living in this foreign land, and I'm gonna cut them some slack here a little bit. They were living in this foreign land, and their father, Elimelech, was gone, so they took wives in the land that they found themselves in, Orpah and Ruth, Moabite girls, Gentiles, not part of God's chosen people. And when you understand why God made rules like that for the nation of Israel, it makes more sense. I mean, in this day and time, if you're just looking at it through, through our eyes of what we know culturally today, it might be like, well, God, that's not very fair. They should be able to marry whoever they want. That's not very fair, God. But God was protecting them because these were pagan nations. They were godless nations. He was protecting his people because he had a plan to save all mankind. And if the people, his chosen people, were so corrupt by the time the plan would take place, it would be an issue. Understand that God has to work with people and he's given us free will. How do you work with people who you've given free will to and move them and guide them? I mean, we're not puppets, right? He could have made them all puppets and say, well, I can do this, and I can do this, and I can do this, and God could, but he doesn't. He doesn't because he gave us free choice and free will. So he knew some of these things, and he set some things in place, like laws to protect them. And can I just say this? Our laws today, many of them are based off the word of God, and those laws are in place to protect us. Our police officers are there as authority to protect us. Give the police officers a little praise today, if you would. They're awesome. These were Moabite girls. You're not going to marry those Moabite girls, are you? Yes, I am. I started talking in Southern accent again. Sorry about that. But this is an example of not being equally yoked, as the Bible puts it. Naomi and her sons, they knew better, but again, the Jews didn't fully obey God when they entered the promised land. They didn't drive out the occupants as they were told to. And I don't know how many years, um, the, the story of Ruth, how many years or what the year was when it took place exactly. It, it's kind of hard to know, but it was sometime in between, as I said earlier, between when Joshua brought him into the promised land and King Saul became king. And there was 400 plus years in there. So this is somewhere in the middle of this, we don't know how far along things had been relaxed, but they had definitely been relaxed. They didn't obey like they should have. They allowed the paganistic godlessness to infiltrate their holy culture that God had called them to. And essentially, they separated themselves from God instead of separating themselves from the world and keeping themselves from the Canaanite women. 
Malon and Killian just did what everyone else was doing. I mean, come on, think about this. They're, 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 they're coming of age, they're living in a foreign land, and they are, are young men, and they see, I mean, they see those Moabite girls, right? Did God really say, don't do that, don't touch that, don't, don't go there, don't marry them? Did he really say that? Interesting, that, that's, what, that's what the devil told Adam and Eve in the garden. Did God really say Second Corinthians 6, 16 through 17 says, What agreement has the temple of God, that's us, our body, the temple of the Holy Spirit, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and I will welcome you. I'm reading out of the New Testament. That's a, that's, a, that's a mandate to us. Touch no unclean thing. Become separate from the things of this world. Not isolationalists, but separate. And whether you're talking New Covenant or Old Covenant, God desires our obedience. That's one thing you, you, you can't deny through all of Scripture. God desires obedience. He wants us to be obedient to his word in all things. Ruth 1.5 and both Malon and Killian died. Oh, the story just keeps getting better and better, doesn't it? Old sickly and waste away died. So that the woman, Naomi, was left without her two sons and her husband. So bad turns to worse for Naomi. Both, again, her sons, they die. And while they were living in this foreign land of Moab. So she's stuck there as a widow. She doesn't have any sons to take care of her. And this was a real family crisis. Without sons who would provide for Naomi's rest and comfort, uh, re remember the times they were living in, uh, women didn't have a lot of the basic rights that they have today. Also, Naomi would have ha get, had little opportunity, been given very little opportunity, to help herself without those rights. To be a widow without sons and, and too old to remarry, she was basically going to have to live on the good graces and generosity of others. She would live a life of poverty on the outskirts of society. And women didn't usually own property and had no ability to represent themselves in civil or legal matters. Without adult sons to take care of her, her future was incredibly bleak. This is bad. Husband dies, she's too old to be remarried because she can't have kids anymore. Her sons die. We know this is kind of true in reference to widows who are in this position because the prophets would often encourage and challenge the people to care for the widows and show them compassion, take care of them. So she begins to think, at least back home, I'm in Moab right now, at least back home, back in Judah, back in the city of Bethlehem in Judah, there's some hope. People might have pity on her. She wouldn't be a foreigner. I think I need to go back there, she starts thinking. Ruth 1, 6 through 8. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, daughter, daughters-in-laws, to, to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab, well, she was in the fields of Moab, the, that the Lord had visited his people back in Judah and given them food. So she's like, well, the famine's over. So she set out from the place that she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to, her, to your mother's house. 
May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead, namely my husband and my sons, and with me. So she heads back to Bethlehem and Judah with, her, with, with Orpah and Ruth as her only comfort. But as soon as they get down the road just a little bit, she pleads with them, now you don't want to come with me. In Judah, I have some hope. I, I can, people can have pity on me, but you girls, you're young enough, you could still get married. You could go back to your families, you could find Moabite husbands, and you would be okay, you'd be taken care of. You don't want to come with me and be a part of the disaster that my life's going to be in the future. It's going to be very, very hard. They would do better if they just went home to their families. They could get remarried much easier. Most of the men in Judah would not marry a Moabite because it was against the law, even though, you know, old sickly and waste away did it. In verse 9, it says that Naomi kissed them and tried to get them to go. She kissed her daughter-in-laws and said, go, go, it will be so much better for you. This is an act of love by Naomi, by the way. She loves her daughter-in-law so much that she's willing to put herself, her own comfort, her own security at risk because she loves them. Is there any ladies in here who have daughter-in-laws that you need to work at loving? Maybe they need to work at loving you. There's a lot of family dynamics going on here in this story, and it's, it's fun to think about them. But she kissed them, told them to go again, and, and they all wept. Now we're getting back into what we all know. You know, a bunch of girls get together and they start crying. That was so bad, wasn't it, of me to say that? I'm glad nobody said Amen. These were daughter-in-laws who absolutely loved their mother-in-law. She must have had a tremendous influence on them because they didn't want to leave her side. Both Ruth and Orpah, it says, wept. They refused, and she kept pleading with them. And, and, and guys, this is a hallmark goodbye if I've ever seen one. She says these words to them in verse 13. After they've wept, after she's kissed them, she says, It is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Don't let what God has done to me ruin your lives. That's what she basically said. So Naomi's human nature comes out, and obviously she's blaming God for all this. His hand has gone out against her. No matter, and, and I just want to say this. No matter how bad your circumstances are, don't blame God. His word says that he will never leave us or forsake us. And as she was pleading with them to go, the waterworks start all over again. And Orpah kisses her mother-in-law. And then she heads back to Moab. She consents. But Ruth clung to Naomi. It's really interesting. Let's read on, Ruth 1, 15 through 18. It says, and she said, see your sister-in-law. Now she's, now she's going to plead with Ruth some more. She's already gone through this twice with them. Orpah she decided to go, and now she's pleading with Ruth more. She says, and she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. That really stuck out to me. Because when she was in the family with this Jewish husband, I imagine that she worshipped the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. But Naomi 
is telling her, go back to her people, her family, and to her gods. Naomi's saying that to Ruth, just as saying, Orpah did it, you need to do it too. She says, return after your sister-in-law, verse 16. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. And listen to this. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything puts, or anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. And it's amazing to me when you think about Naomi and how she was actually pleading with Ruth to leave her and go back to her gods. Again, I already said that, but it just blows me away. I imagine that she had become so bitter about her situation that she had lost faith in the Lord. I mean, that would be like one of us who knows Jesus, we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and we invite somebody to church, and they come to church, and maybe we invite somebody to Jesus, and they come to Jesus, maybe through church, maybe not, but, but they've entered into a relationship with him, and, and we've been a part of that. We've shared with them, we've mentored them, we've, 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 we've talked with them, and they come to Christ, and then they're, they're growing, they're looking good, everything is good, and then all of a sudden, your life starts going south for whatever reason, and you say, you know what, this whole Jesus thing, I wouldn't do it. You should go back to whatever you were doing before, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, or whatever it was. You should go back to your old gods. You should go back to your old thing, because this doesn't work for me. That is basically, what, basically what's happening here. She had become so bitter about her situation that she had lost faith in the Lord. And how often do we lose faith when things don't go the way we want them to go? I think every one of us can identify with Naomi a little bit. Life gets hard sometimes and things happen and we're like, why me, God? Why me? She literally, again, tells Ruth, go back to Moab and worship your God there. Uh, Kamash, I think is how you pronounce their God in Moab. Talk about losing your faith. Getting to a place where you plead with others to worship a false god because you're so bitter at the one true God. And it's such a striking comparison between these two women. Naomi, one of God's chosen people, and then the pagan-born Moabitess, Ruth. While Naomi is basically showing her complete lack of faith, Ruth speaks some of the most powerful and poetic language in all the Old Testament. And I'm sure Naomi must have influenced her over time, but now the student was acting as the teacher. Ruth was speaking an oath and declaring not only her commitment to Naomi, but her decision to follow the one true God. Ruth left everything she ever knew behind. There were no promises, no hopes of financial gain. She was sacrificing everything to stay with Naomi. She was going to a place she'd never seen before. She was just going to stay with Naomi and serve Naomi's God. 
For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will, be, there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. See, it's a beautiful picture of salvation for us today. To go after Christ with that kind of reckless abandonment to everything that we place our security in. In church, we do it. We have our security in all sorts of things. That's why we get so ruffled when, when something doesn't go our way politically or something doesn't go our way when it comes to uh, uh, the media speaking out about something or, 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 or even the, the situation of the, the pandemic. We get all ruffled because we start seeing those things that we've placed our security in, they look like they're going to be taken away. And we get angry and we get upset. And that's mine. And I deserve it. I worked for that. Can I just say something? None of us deserves anything. I mean, God loves us and he wants to bless us and he does bless us and we get to enjoy that. But what more could we want than eternal salvation through Jesus Christ? We put our security in so many things and it belongs there. Ruth had that reckless abandonment to everything she placed her security in. She just let it all go. Family, her gods, everything she knew, she's just going to follow Naomi. She laid down her life. And to lay down our lives for him and not let money, fame, or recognition, power, or anything keep us from going wholeheartedly after God, this is the lesson that Ruth teaches us. And she wasn't raised in the church, so to speak, or in the midst of God's people. She wasn't raised with God's ordinances and his laws. She was the product of an incestuous relationship. You talk about a past. I think of the qualities of mercy, kindness, and grace that she displayed towards her mother-in-law. They're very evident in her life, so much that we should strive to be Full of Ruth or Ruthful, right? Instead of Ruthless. Ruth 1, 19 through 21. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirring or was stirred because of them. And the, woman, the women said, is this Naomi? I mean, like, where's her husband? Where are her sons? Is this, is this the same Naomi that, that left years and years ago? And Naomi said to them, do not call me Naomi, meaning do not call me pleasant. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Mara means bitter. I went away full, she says in 21, verse 21, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? I mean, I, I can feel for Naomi. I can identify with her a little bit. I've felt that way before. It reminds me of, of Jonah saying, I'm not going to preach to those Ninevites. It reminds me of, of, of those different characters in the Word of God that get angry about whatever God is leading them into. I've been there. Have you been there? Mad about the situation you find yourself in? 
And in those three verses I just read, Naomi alludes to the Lord not, not being good to her four different times in three verses. Obviously, she has been through it. But she is certainly vocal with her negativity. And remember, this is a woman who named her son Sickly. And the other one, Waste Away. Upon arriving back in Bethlehem, the, the, the two, they, they caused a bit of excitement among the people. And this could be that it was just such a big deal when Naomi left Bethlehem with her husband and sons who are not with her now. And as they question whether this was Naomi, the woman they used to know, she says, don't call me pleasant. My life has been anything but pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitterness. And here's the kicker. Bad things happen to good people sometimes. Not as a punishment from God, but just because we live in a fallen world and as long as we are here and Jesus is not on the physical throne of this world, bad things are going to happen. Yes, we have the redeeming grace of his kingdom at work in our lives, but his kingdom is here and it's yet coming. It's not fully come yet. It'll come when Jesus comes back and then all the fullness of him will come into play. As we continue in the story of Ruth next week, you're going to see how God can turn things around. So much, in fact, that you can't even dream how blessed you can be. Ruth had lost everything just as Naomi did. Think about that. Think of Naomi's attitude and Ruth's attitude. Naomi, Ruth lost just as much as Naomi. Maybe, maybe in more, you could, argue, you could argue back and forth. Because she left everything she knew. Yet in the midst of it, Ruth declares her faith in God instead of spewing negativity on everybody around her, which is what Naomi did. And you can go through life recognizing all the bad things that happen to you and you can wallow in them, or you can recognize all the bad things that happen to you and set it up next to an eternal God that loves you with an everlasting love and realize it's going to be okay. It's not that you have to deny that bad things have happened. It just is that you need to look at Jesus, look at the Lord, and know that he's going to get you through it. Ruth didn't deny her hardship. She, was just, she just wasn't going to lose her faith over it. On the contrary, she would find her faith through it. Church, there's so many lessons in the book of Ruth. We've just got through one chapter and, and really spent most of our time on five verses. When you read the word of God, you've got to ask questions. You've got to do a little studying. You've got to read the study notes down below in your fire Bible. A lot of which I found, tons of great stuff. Read the word of God and then begin to ask yourself, how does this apply to me? How does this apply to me? How, does, how can I make this a part of my life? And if there's any lesson that sticks out to me today, it's, wow. When bad things happen, don't sweat it. God's got a plan. He's got a plan for you. Would you bow your heads for just a second? If you're here this morning and you're going through something really tough, circumstantially, situationally, maybe it's physical, maybe it's financial, we, we, we have all the categories we always say all the time, but if you just feel the pressure of this life weighing heavy on you, you, you feel this burden of uneasiness that's, that's just like a dark cloud that follows you around. And, and you identify with Naomi, like, where's God? I mean, come on. If you feel like that, and you're going, I need to change my Naomi attitude 
and become more like Ruth and her attitude. If that's your heart today, and you're going, yeah, I, I, need, a, I need to shift from Naomi to Ruth. Would you just lift up your hand and say, that's me? Okay? Hands are going up all over the place. And I relate to that. I think the more I read about Ruth and the more I meditate on her life and who she was, it's amazing. Let's pray as a church this morning. Lord God, I thank you that you will never leave us or forsake us. God, I thank you that you came not just to tell us how to live and give us a a big uh, list of rules of do's and don'ts, but God, you came to have a relationship with us that's real and personal. You came to change us from the inside out, not the outside in. You came to heal every wound within our heart and to touch every place within us that's broken. God, you are our salvation. You are our Lord, our Savior. And God, today, as some of us feel the weight of circumstance, we feel the weight of that on our shoulders. God, I pray that you would remove that weight. And Lord, we could just lay it right down at the foot of your cross. You died for those things so we wouldn't have to die from them. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give us that ruthful attitude. Lord, we don't throw Naomi under the bus. We know we've been there. She wasn't a bad person. She was just caught in these circumstances and in her own negativity. God, we pray right now that we would not be like that, that we would see your light and see your truth and rise above, and you would help us hydroplane on all that crappiness. Lord, we give you praise today. We give you our hearts today. We give you our lives today. Commit us for the next few weeks, God, to this book of Ruth, and let it speak volumes to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being a part of the Indianola First podcast. Join us next week to stay updated on our latest messages.